Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am, but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Newsweek Foreign Service. I'm Josh Lowe, and each week we look at the big stories from the US and what they mean for the rest of the world. So I'm actually on my own this week. Usually I'd have my colleague Miran Gidda here with me, but she's out reporting on a story. Can't tell you too much about it because it's top secret, obviously. But I do know that today she's meeting a whole bunch of dogs as part of it. And so I sort of feel a bit jealous in a way to be cooped up here in the office. But anyway, I'll let you guess what that's all about. What this is all about, we're going to have a look at Donald Trump's national security team because we have a little bit of more of an idea of who's on it. We're going to focus in particular on two men, two retired generals, Michael Flynn, his pick for National Security Advisor, and James Mattis, his pick for Defence Secretary. And we're going to look not only at these two men and at their views on how they might influence uh, the president-elect, but also on this idea of having so many uh, former generals in your team. And there's there's other names, uh, former generals, that have been floated as well. Uh, is that something that's going to change US politics? Is it something we should be concerned about? So anyway, rather than me ramble on for too much longer, I think I'll let my guests introduce themselves. And I should say we're dialing into them at a conference, a defense conference somewhere in the wilds of the English countryside. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Heather Williams. I'm a lecturer in defense studies at King's College London. Um, my re research focuses on nuclear weapons. But before that, I worked in the U.S. Department of Defense. 
Hello, I'm Matthew Harries. I'm a research fellow for Transatlantic Affairs at the International Institute for Strategic Studies in London, where I'm also managing editor of the Institute's journal, which is called Survival. So welcome to you both. I guess what I'd like to start with is just going through kind of almost who a couple of people are and their histories and, and what we think of them, really. So if we could start with Mattis, who, as I said, has been announced by Trump in a rally last week as his Secretary of Defence pick. Who is he? What do we think of him? You know, we can go into, I think we should absolutely talk about Mattis and his positions and some of his background. But before that, I feel like we kind of just have to preface any conversation about Trump's defence team with the only certainty that this a president-elect is showing is uncertainty. That's the only real thing that we can count on. He is prone to surprise. Um, the other thing is also he seems to be somebody who really likes to keep his own counsel and has a very small, close group of people that he actually listens to. So all the people that I think we're going to now talk about, yeah, it's really important to think about where they come from and their views, but the really big question is, will Trump even listen to them? So turning to Mattis, um, for me, the two big things maybe three of the big things that have jumped out as really prominent in his views. The first is that he is very strongly anti-Iran. And so we might expect to see him take issue with the Iran nuclear deal, for example. And in that, I mean, that kind of aligns with things that Trump said during the campaign, some of which he since walked back from. Uh, the second big trait that I see in Mattis is that he is anti-Russia, which is definitely different than Trump's message throughout the campaign and some other people that are in his close circle. The final thing, this was just something that came out recently, was Mattis talking about, it sounds like unilateral reductions in US ICBM forces, which seems a bit strange given the kind of more hawkish nature of his views on other things. Uh, and sorry, Heather, if I could just get you for for the layperson to, to say what you mean by ICBM forces. Um, so intercontinental ballistic missiles, this is just one means of delivery for U.S. nuclear weapons. OK, uh, uh, Matt, uh, did you have any thoughts to add to that? Yeah, I mean, just to say that for someone who has the nickname Mad Dog, I think it's important to say about General Mattis that he's a deeply serious person. Uh, this is a serious nomination and I think has been welcomed by a lot of people who have been nervous about the other people that uh, Trump has nominated so far. I mean, he's a, he's a fairly legendary Marine general. He's well-read. Um, he's famous for being an inspirational leader. He, to all uh, appearances, he seems to be a man of principle. And so in what is quite a bleak picture, actually, the nomination of, of Mattis is probably encouraging. I mean, the only caveat to that and perhaps we can get onto this, is that um, he's another nominee or potential nominee who is a, a retired general and a, a recently retired general at that, um, which also means that he'll need a waiver from Congress uh, to serve as Secretary of Defence because he hasn't been out for the required um, seven years, which in theory makes his confirmation a bit harder, although he probably won't have too severe confirmation um, problems. But, you know, uh, the overall uh, picture is that actually, as an individual, he, he seems like a, a good pick. The interesting question is whether it's so healthy to have a number of uh, retired generals in your cabinet. 
And you kind of got to something there that it has sort of struck me reading all the coverage of this, Matt, about Mattis, where on the one hand, you know, he sounds like um, a fantastically intelligent person, someone with a, with, with a lot of knowledge of the places that he has served in, as well as just in terms of pure defense, but also slightly more theoretical knowledge. He sounds thoughtful. I've seen him interviewed most of the time. It seems quite kind of measured in the way he speaks. But on the other hand, there's this kind of mad dog side to him. And there's also, and I, I think we've got a clip of it, actually, there's, there's his probably most famous broadcast quote where he talks about the idea that shooting people is fun. And I think we can just play that quickly. That kid's a lot of fun to fight him. You know, it's a hell of a hoot. Uh, it's fun to shoot some people. I'd be right up on you. I like brawling. Which way is the best way to look at him? I mean, is he the mad dog or is he the warrior monk, I think, is the other side of his persona that's talked about? Or is he some combination of the two? And how does that work? Well, I mean, you know, to be fair to Mattis, I mean, he got in trouble for that quote, but there, well, there was context to it, which was he was talking about fighting the Taliban and he was talking about, you know, encountering people who are repressive towards women, towards homosexuals. He was talking about shooting the bad guys, and obviously that's impolitic language, and it caused him some trouble when he was appointed to be commander of uh, Central Command. It uh, it did come up at the time. To a certain extent, I I think that he should probably be given a pass for that, that particular quote. I mean, more broadly, as I understand it, one of the reasons he was and is respected among Marines and, and, and more broadly, is that, you know, he, he speaks directly and he has an approach to combat and to leadership which is very blunt. Now, I suppose that then raises the question of what will he be like at the helm of a large and extremely bureaucratic organisation? Because the skills necessary to lead your men into battle aren't always the ones that you need to sort of navigate among the the tricky politics of the Pentagon, but I think Heather can probably uh, <laughs> speak to that as a, as a veteran of, of Pentagon politics can speak to that better than I can. I kind of share a lot of Matt's views on Mattis in that, you know, I, I have so I have a lot of questions about having this many generals in a cabinet. Um, just, I think, yesterday or today they were also talking about uh, potentially General Kelly at DHS. A couple former generals' names have also come up for state. But at the same time, these are people who do demonstrate a lot of leadership and who can be very inspiring. They clearly have inspired Trump in some way um, and gotten onto his team. I think just within the Department of Defense, yeah, there's definitely a lot of bureaucratic battles that are going to be fought. But so much of that is really going to depend on what policies and priorities Trump comes out with, which at this point are pretty unclear, I think. And we don't even know who those key personalities are going to be that that will be involved in the key players in this. Mm. And that's um, something that perhaps we could go a little bit further into quickly is that, as you say, we've we've just talked about Mattis. Uh, We'll come on in a second and have a quick look at General Flynn, who's uh, the National Security Advisor. Um, General Petraeus is is a name that's been floating around for Secretary of State. How unusual is it? Because sitting here in Britain, former military personnel are are not a, a major presence in politics. In fact, that's often spoken of as a problem by some people in Britain. Um, in America, it is a bit more common. But how unusual is it to have this many top military figures in such senior positions? And, and is it an issue or is it is it going to be an interesting thing? I'd say it's unprecedented in the history of the US to have this many retired generals. The waiver, I, I think I have a slightly different view from Matt. I don't, I don't think that Mattis's confirmation is necessarily going to be straightforward. There's already some debate about how they're going to get his confirmation through. Talk about piggybacking it on to the finance bill, or will they deal with it separately? 
And I think the reason for that, it isn't just that people have an issue with Mattis Orflin, but I think it's more this deep concern about, do we really want the generals in charge? Again, with Mattis, he only retired in 2013. I do think that it is cause for concern. It's something to ha that Congress is definitely going to be having a debate about. I know um, my own Senator Kirsten Gillibrand is organizing a filibuster to try to block Mattis's confirmation. Whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, I mean, so much of that depends on the personalities involved. And Mattis does seem like a relatively safe pair of hands. It's ironic that we're saying somebody with the nickname Mad Dog is a relatively safe pair of hands. Yeah. And what, what about Flynn then, who I mentioned as National Security Advisor, who was more involved with the Trump campaign? He stumped for Trump a few times and that sort of thing. What, what do we think about him? Well, I mean, I think you can infer something from the fact that he's being nominated to a position that doesn't need Senate confirmation <laughs> yeah. um, because Flynn is a complicated character. On the one hand... He built a, a pretty fearsome reputation with the Joint Special Operations Command, where he was supposedly responsible for something approximating a revolution in the way that they did business in terms of collecting intelligence, feeding that intelligence into a system of analysis and getting that analysis back out into the field very quickly, which allowed for operations in Iraq and Afghanistan that were very rapid and very efficient. You know, I, I think he built a reputation on that. Then, when he became director of the Defence Intelligence Agency, and this goes back to what it's like being at the head of a big bureaucracy, his reputation started to change. And what had previously been kind of a refreshing bluntness and irreverence and taste for uh, confrontational argument started to become a problem. And uh, he was relieved of that position under a bit of a cloud. Now, Flynn paints that effective sacking as the product of his stepping out of line with the Obama administration on how it talked about Islamic extremism. I think the, the reality is more complicated than that and actually had much more to do with his approach to reform of the DIA and the resistance to that reform and, and how, we, how we dealt with that resistance. But since then, he's kind of gone off the rails, uh, frankly. He, um, this has come up in the news very recently because uh, during the campaign he was prone to tweeting and retweeting some pretty wild conspiracy theories. But he also, you know, went on a fairly public campaign to complain about the Obama administration's attitude towards Islamic extremism, centred around this idea that the first step had to be to say explicitly that the problem was uh, radical Islam and that essentially that Islam is inherently radical and that Islam itself is the problem rather than a perversion of Islam, which was the administration's position. It was also fairly shocking to see a quite recently retired general on stage whipping up a Republican audience to chant, lock her up, lock her up, in regard to Clinton, who he had served under, actually, when she was... Secretary of State. So, you know, on the one hand, you have somebody who, you know, has been a very serious person with a with a pretty fearsome reputation, but since then has gone a bit off the rails. And, and Colin Powell was very scathing about him in emails that were leaked. General Stan McChrystal reportedly called Flynn to try to get him to tone it down. And, you know, what that is going to look like when it translates into giving advice to the president and, and running the NSC is, is really hard to predict. One thing you can predict, though, uh, is that Flynn will be leading a push to make Islamic extremism the primary focus 
of US defence and security policy, which, if he's successful in doing that, will be quite a shift. And it seems as if um, an area of Flynn's views, which which he also shares with Mattis and which is related to some of the stuff you've just been saying, is on Iran. And these guys are, are both pretty critical of the Iran deal. We've got a clip actually of Flynn um, talking on the stump for Trump about Hillary's role in the Iran deal. Iran is the leading state sponsor of terrorism. And our country gave the leading state sponsor of terrorism a path to a nuclear weapon. Give me a break. Now, looking at Iran then and at U.S. policy towards Iran now, first, obviously, we have to put this caveat on things, as Heather has already done, that Trump is very much his own man and is not, by all accounts, an easy person to tell what to do, won't necessarily be entirely influenced by those around him. But um, can we foresee any likely kind of shift on Iran with these two guys in a position of power? Or is, is there anything we can say about that? I think that with regards to that quote, I'll speak to that kind of first and some thoughts on how Trump might go. I mean, there are two statements in that quote that are just categorically wrong. The first is that the U.S. gave Iran anything. The U.S. entered into that deal because it was a good deal. I know that a lot of people will probably take umbrage with that issue, but to say that the U.S. has given Iran something, I think is just a gross misrepresentation of what that agreement actually does. The second issue with it is that it says that we put Iran on a path to nuclear weapons. And again, it's a complete mischaracterization of the deal, which is that Iran was on a path to nuclear weapons, and it's since been flipped. Now, what does that mean about what we might expect from Trump? I mean, this is a man who kind of got elected because he was willing to say anything. And so you're left wondering, were these quotes just thrown out there because they resonated with people, or do they actually believe these things? Um, Because, I mean, we've already seen Trump take a few steps back from canceling the Iran deal. There's one thing about Trump that I think has been consistent, to contradict what I said earlier, but it's that he likes to make a deal. And something about it plays to his ego, perhaps, or it's just his personality. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. So if he thinks that he can somehow get a better deal out of Iran and he wants to pursue that without jeopardizing the existing agreement, well, you know, we might need to entertain that notion. I don't know if you can do it without jeopardizing the existing agreement. But to what extent will he be influenced by these people? We really just don't know. He might do his own thing as he has thus far. It does seem a little bit like Mattis, uh, particularly, you know, as you say, Flynn may have just been getting excited uh, on the stump there. But it does seem that Mattis in particular is is quite committedly against Iran. I think in 2012, he said the three gravest threats facing the US were Iran, Iran and Iran. I mean, where does this come from? Where does this opposition to Iran come from, do you think? Well, I think think there's an important nuance there. Yes, he views Iran as a serious threat to the United States. And I think that he thought the Obama administration was unwise to pursue the nuclear deal at the expense of putting other kinds of pressure on Iran. However, he has also said that now that the deal has been made, it's a question of living with it rather than seeking to tear it up. And that is kind of the interesting question is Trump has promised to tear up the Iran deal. He's also promised to keep it and live with it. And he's also promised to try and get a better deal. Um, so he's, you know, he's covered all his bases. The question is, what can you actually do? Well, sure, he could try and scrap it. But US allies and the other parties to the agreement will be against that, um, because a lot of political capital was spent making this deal. And to be honest, having got out of the situation where the US and Israel were heading towards potentially striking Iran and all the consequences that would come after that, 
there isn't a lot of appetite to to reopen the box. Even uh, you know some of the strongest critics of the deal um, in Republican foreign policy circles are pretty leery about outright scrapping it. So that raises the question: Okay, can you try and get a better deal? Well, you know, you could try to put additional types of pressure on Iran, but then you risk strengthening constituencies within Iran who were opposed to the deal uh, to begin with, who are already criticizing President Rouhani for having given away too much. And you risk, by trying to make it better, you risk it collapsing. Um, and that is a dangerous outcome for everyone, I think. For all the, the bluster about it, there's certainly a lot of reason for the Trump administration to be cautious. The problem is they may have talked themselves into a corner um, where you know not taking any action on Iran will be difficult. So I think Heather is absolutely right to point out you know just how unpredictable this is. I, I do worry though that Trump's Trump's belief that he's good at making deals uh, could lead down a pretty perilous path. I really agree with Matt, and I also also just add I think that there are a couple other pressures on Trump where you know not taking action would be difficult. And these are the forces that led to this anti-Iran sentiment that you pointed out in your question. And allies are a really big part of that, that are pushing the U.S. to view Iran in a certain light. But there's another issue, which is a very American experience, which is the, the legacy of the 79 hostage crisis. And I think that if you talk to Americans, there's an obvious generational difference in a lot of people's attitudes to Iran, where people who are alive and remember the 79 hostage crisis are extremely hawkish and anti-Iran. And they'll still make statements, you know, linking back to the embassy crisis there, whereas somewhat younger people seem to be a bit more open-minded and seem to be more favorable to the deal. And I just bring this up because these are going to continue to be forces that are going to be playing on Trump and pushing him to do something about Iran in particular. And, and if we look at the, another foreign power then that we mentioned very briefly earlier in the conversation, which is Russia, about whom, you know, as we know, as has been very well rehearsed by now, Trump has been suggested that he might be more sympathetic towards Russia and President Vladimir Putin than previous US presidents in the recent past. What do these two men think about Russia as far as we know? I think we, we touched on Mattis being um, fairly hawkish, fairly anti-Russia earlier. Yeah, I mean, I think from what we can tell from his public statements, Mattis at least believes in the concept of alliance. I don't think this, the worry that people have with Trump that he might be inclined to make a deal with Russia over the head of NATO allies, I don't think that applies to Mattis. Flynn is more complicated. Um, he famously was paid a handsome sum to go to the 10-year anniversary of the setting up of Russia Today, where he sat next to Vladimir Putin. And he has sounded a lot friendlier to, to Russia than, than is currently US policy, and he sounded a lot like Trump. On the other hand, again, it's probably wise not to overreact. I think at least part of Flynn's affinity with Russia has to do with his obsession with Islamic extremism. And so I think he sees the potential for cooperation with Russia on that topic. Now, that might have knock-on effects, especially in Syria, but in a sense, there is one pragmatic reason for, for having an affinity for, for Russia from Flynn's point of view. He also seems quite, if you listen to what he personally has said, um, he seems quite preoccupied with the theme of strength and of an image of a strong America. And his criticism of the Obama administration is that the administration, you know, gave off the image of, of weakness. And the Russians understand strength, so the thinking goes. So, you know, the Russians know how the world really works. We ought to get into that. At least, that you know, that's what, that's what Flynn thinks. So, yes, there is definitely reason to believe that Flynn is, is kind of amenable to, to cozying up a bit more to Russia. On the other hand, it's not necessarily the case that it's out of uh, an ideological connection. 
you know it could be it could be for sort of more more pragmatic reasons and i think we'll see some attempts in the in the first year or two at yet another us russia reset and there's a way to frame that in a really positive light which is well russia's a threat we have these horrible, this horrible relationship with them. Well, let's try to improve that relationship. And there might be a way that the administration tries to sell this as something that can win over people as anti-Russian as Mattis and some people on the Hill. Whether or not it succeeds in selling it to domestic audiences, I, I'm a bit skeptical. But more importantly, I don't think any U.S.-Russia reset is going to last very long. I mean, they typically don't. Even the Bush-Putin um, one was pretty short-lived you know, even though Bush looked into Putin's eyes and got a sense of his soul and it was a very deep and meaningful relationship in some ways. But just because there's just such a conflict of interest between Russian ambitions right now and and, and Trump. And I, I, I can't help but wonder, you know, Trump's whole mantra is make America great again. Well, what does that look like abroad? Making America great again as an international power seems pretty clear that that's going to bump up against Russian interests. And so whether or not they get on well personally, they've never even met each other. We don't know how that's going to go. And so that kind of touches on something there. Could we broadly describe these two guys as kind of hawks or, or doves? I mean, to use very simplistic language, in the sense that obviously Trump during the campaign, as on so many things, he sort of ping-ponged back and forth on that. You know, one moment he's going to be retreating from wars overseas and the next moment he's going to be bombing the hell out of ISIS. I mean, are we going to see these guys pushing for a more interventionist strategy on areas like ISIS, on other areas? What do we think? I agree with you know, Matt's observation earlier that counterterrorism and challenging ISIS is going to be the centerpiece of the next defense policy. So uh, if we want to call it a hawkish, then I, I suppose that would be the label to put to it. But it's probably going, and I, I think that this counterterrorism is going to draw in a lot of the other um, interests going on, such as working with Russia as a partner in counterterrorism. I'm a little bit more pessimistic about the future of U.S. alliances and the U.S. commitment to its allies because of things that Trump said about NATO, which was that NATO should shift to being a counterterrorism organization. Now, again, we don't know if he'll stand by things that he said in the campaign, but we're sitting in Europe, we're sitting in an allied country. Allies get nervous when the U.S. says things like that. So I think we're getting near to the point where we're going to be wrapping up, actually. But um, just sort of lastly, that bearing in mind everything that we've touched on, bearing in mind the, the, the slightly remarkable nature of these two uh, senior military figures being in positions of power, but bearing in mind the policy positions we've taken. How much of a shift are we seeing when ordinary Americans, ordinary people around the world look at the process of Trump putting together his team in this area on defense? How much of a change with the past administration, with recent administrations, is this? Is this something that is very significant or are we looking at subtler changes? Okay, well, there's one very short answer to that, uh, which is we don't know. Uh, you know. His team is not fully in place. He hasn't started governing yet. We don't know. And I think speculating too much is probably a mistake. On the evidence that's there now, one thing we can say that is a big shift is that Trump's team, I think at the top level and at lower levels, is likely to be drawn from a different pool of people than we've seen in previous administrations. So, you know, not only was the election result a surprise, so a lot of people who thought they were going to, into a Clinton administration are now not going into a Clinton administration. A lot of prospective Republican national security staffers signed letters saying they would never work for Trump. Now, I don't know whether some of them signed it 
thinking, well, you know, that's a bluff that will never be called, but here we are, and they've signed letters saying they won't do it. Maybe, and, and perhaps we should hope for this, maybe some of them will go back on that and will think that, you know, in the national interest it's good to serve. But I think, generally speaking, what we're seeing is a different set of personalities than has been in power. And a lot of these people don't have extensive foreign policy experience. I, I don't think we should speculate too much about the direction of policy yet, but what we can say is that in, in terms of temperament, in terms of experience and personal makeup, this is a different set of characters than has been in, in government before. I would completely agree with that, and if we were pushed to make some guesses, the guess is this is going to be a very different national security strategy, national security policies, than we have known for the past eight years. I think it may end up looking a little bit like the George W. Bush administration's policies based on some of the people who have been involved in the process thus far. But I would just reiterate, you know, a couple of things that Matt said, because I think they're really important, which is there is a hope that some really great Republican defense strategists who said they would never work for a Trump administration. I mean, that's a very personal decision to make, but there is a really big hope that they will go into an administration because it isn't just Trump that needs them. You know, the whole country needs good people, people of good character for the next four to eight years. The second point is just thinking, we keep saying it's too soon to tell. Perhaps the thing that's shocking me the most, I don't know if Matt felt the same, it's the lack of appointments on defense issues. You know, it's it's almost mid-December, and we only really know two of his key defense advisors. We don't have a secretary of state yet. That makes it really difficult to have any sense of who's going to be helping Trump make these decisions, but also it makes it hard to have a sense of where is Trump going, because usually whoever he appoints to these positions gives you that sense. So we, it seems like they're still figuring it out for themselves. Okay, well, I think we're going to have to leave it there, but thanks so much, uh, to to Heather and to Matt uh, for coming on. Thanks to everyone back at home for listening. You can find us every week um, on Acast, on SoundCloud, on iTunes. If you can like us, follow us, review us, everything you can possibly do on there, we'd be really, really, really grateful. And in between that, you can go to newsweek.com. You can pick up a copy of Newsweek. Thanks very much. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.